Our Father, we thank You that Christ is risen. We thank You, Lord, that in Him we are reconciled to You and to one another. And so, Father, as we gather, we seek to understand Your Word. And we seek to see what the implications of the resurrection are today. How it's relevant to our lives today. So by Your grace and by the power of Your Spirit working within us, we ask for understanding and conviction and the right motivation to live lives that please You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you'll want to turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3 today. But today is, uh, is Easter Sunday. No surprise to anyone, but different people think of different things when they think about Easter Sunday, don't they? Some people, when they think about Easter Sunday, they think of, uh, of time spent with their family. Some people think a day off, maybe on Friday or maybe on Monday. Some people might be thinking about egg hunts and and the Easter bunny, or they think of it as a day to just put on your best clothes, and some people uh, think of it as one of the two days of the year that they had probably better get to church. Although that is certainly a misconception, uh, it's not true, you should go to church every week, Uh, but for those who profess to be a Christian, this is the day that we celebrate the cornerstone of all Christian doctrine. And that is the doctrine of the literal bodily resurrection of our Lord Christ Jesus. Now the Bible doesn't actually instruct us to have a special service on Easter Sunday. It's actually something that we should gather every first day of the week to celebrate. We don't meet on Saturdays at the end of a tiresome week. We meet in the rest of Sunday at the beginning of the week to celebrate, to remember that Christ is risen. Not just today, but every day. Every, every day we should remember that Christ is risen. And if this doctrine, if this belief was not completely true, that is, let's say somebody could disprove it, and people have tried. It would be absolutely catastrophic to the entire Christian faith. You just heard what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says that the resurrection of Christ is indeed at the heart of the gospel. That is, he says it's of first importance. That's what he says in verses 3 and 4. If it's not true that Christ has risen from the dead, our preaching is in vain. That is, it's, it's worthless. It's for nothing. And your faith also is worthless because you're still dead in your sins if Christ has not been raised. If it's not true that Christ has been raised from the dead, then we have actually lied about God. We've made ourselves false witnesses against God, and that's got to be a position to be feared above any and every other position. If it's not true that Christ has been raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied among all other people, above all other people. And these are all statements that Paul made for us which testify to the fact, the historical fact, that the resurrection of Christ is not only real, but that it's of utmost importance 
The psalmist poses the rhetorical question, Psalm uh, Psalm 11, verse 3, he says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what what are the righteous going to do? What's their hope? And Paul obviously saw the resurrection of Christ as the foundation of the entire Christian faith. If you take that out, the whole thing comes down. And in each one of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all testify to the reality that Jesus appeared in bodily form, not as a ghost, but in bodily form multiple times after His death. Here He is in one account, appearing to to Mary Magdalene in the garden outside of the tomb. And there He is again in another account, appearing to to a couple of unnamed disciples who are on on the road to Emmaus. And once again, He appears over here on the shore of Galilee as Peter and James and John are fishing. And again, He appears among the eleven after they had locked the doors of the building that they were in because they were so afraid of the persecution that they faced from the Jews. And He appears in the middle of them, assuring them that they can and should believe in the resurrection of Christ. At one point, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared post-resurrection, to 500 people at once. Now, you might think, okay, maybe people were hallucinating when they saw Him. Maybe they were imagining things when they saw Him. But 500 people don't have the same hallucination. 500 people don't have their imaginations go wild at the same time of the same thing. That just doesn't happen scientifically. And Paul reminded his readers that many of those 500 still lived amongst them, amongst the people that he was writing to. In essence, he was challenging them to ask those people what they witnessed if they didn't believe what Paul said about the resurrection. People who are lying don't say 500 people saw this and you can ask any one of them. Some of them are among you. There's no lying going on here. The resurrection is true. Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was a persecutor of Christians. Meaning his life had been completely changed. The disciples too, they had abandoned their careers to spread the good news of the resurrection of Christ. And even when they were persecuted to the point of being scattered, even when they faced certain death with with the, the most gruesome deaths imaginable looming in front of them. They did not change their testimony, even though they were hundreds of miles apart. People don't do that. People won't die for a lie. People will change their stories to save their lives if they're not sure that what they believe is true. These people all saw Jesus. The resurrection is true. And truth be told, there is no event in all of human history that has more historical credibility than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would actually be easier to disprove yesterday than it would be to disprove the resurrection. And due to the importance that the resurrection has to the faith, we don't just meet on Easter to celebrate the resurrection. It's actually something that we should gather and meditate on every first day of the week. But there's another doctrine that's somewhat overlooked in Christian circles, or perhaps taken for granted, and that is what we would refer to as the federal headship of Christ. And this is, to put it, uh, to put it on, a, on, a, on a level where we can all understand it, that's the doctrine that affirms that Christ's people 
those who have repented and believed in Christ are so completely united with Him. It's like they're grafted in, like you graft plants together. It's like we're, we're grafted into Him and that we were raised from death with Him and with all of the redeemed. In other words, when somebody is a Christian, they are spiritually unified with Christ in such a way that we become partakers of everything that He did. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. And we were raised with Him. And to believe otherwise would be to hold the dangerously false belief that we can somehow be separated from Him. And the truth is that we cannot be separated from Him. Praise be to God. But Martin Luther said this of the resurrection of Christ. He said, quote, By no means are we simply to assent to the words of the doctrine. Christ does not design that we be able merely to accept and speak intelligently of it, but that its influence be manifest in our lives. In other words, it's great that you've got resurrection knowledge up here. It's great that you know about it intellectually. But it should bear fruit in our lives. It should have an effect on the way that we live our lives. To put it in practical terms, do you really believe that Christ was raised from the dead? And if so, do you believe that nothing can separate you from Christ? Because if both answers to these questions is yes, it should be more than something that you just know intellectually. It should be a truth that changes our lives. If you are united with Christ, it should make a difference in the way that you act daily. It should make a difference if you believe in the resurrection, in the way that you think. It should make a difference in the, the things that you say. It should make a difference in the things that you want, the things that you aspire for, the things that you desire in life. And it should make a difference in the places you go. And that brings us to the text that I want us to consider this morning where Paul is making the same point, that being that if we we're raised with Christ. If we believe in the resurrection, it should have practical effects in our daily lives. Let me put it this way. If it's true that we are living in Him, that is because we're united with Him, then we should also be living for Him. If we're living in Him, it's only natural that we should be living for Him. So let's start with Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And let's just stop there and consider what he says. The first thing that we see is that he starts with the word, therefore. And whenever you see a sentence that starts with the word therefore, you have to wonder what it's there for. So you have to look back. We have to look back at, a, at, a, at another principle that was previously established. And if you look back just a few verses, let's look at verses 20 to 23 of, verse, uh, of chapter 2. I'll read it for you. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, it says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? 
These matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So he starts off in verse 20 by saying, if you have died with Christ. Again, what Christ did, we did with Him. If you are united to Him. If you've died with Christ, he says, why do you submit yourself to all these human decrees? And he gives three examples of of man-made decrees. Don't do this, don't do that, and oh, don't do this one either. Notice that these are all in the negative. Don't, don't, don't. If I say, don't think of an elephant, what's the first thing you think of? You think of an elephant. But do you see how Paul refers to them in verse 23? They're they're all forms of man-made religion. See, man-made religion consists of following rules of self-denial. At best, it's just it's moralism. You know what moralism is? It says, you know, outwardly, uh, behave. Behave. Just behave like a decent person. But we have to understand that that is not the Gospel. The Gospel is not moralism. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't be moral people. Of course we should be. What he's saying is that by setting moral boundaries that don't actually deal with the root of sin, that don't deal with the the issue of sin that's underlying it, you won't break free from sin. What we need to be free from is not just sin itself. Yes, we want to be free from sin, but in order for that to happen, you have to get to the root of it. You have to go to the desire that bears the fruit, that causes the action in your life. And the way to be freed from the desire to sin is to desire something more than you desire sin. See, the danger of following man-made rules is that we have a tendency to think too highly of ourselves when we keep those rules, when we abide by those rules. And then we're crushed the moment that we fail to uphold them because that was, we were counting on that for our goodness. We were counting on that for our worth. And once we cross that boundary, what's left? Only a crushing realization that you're not a good person. The danger is that the person is focusing on on creating or upholding their own goodness instead of focusing on Christ and His goodness. And so the the person may uphold moral purity outwardly, moral goodness outwardly, but the desire remains alive and well, unfazed, untouched on the inside. And the Gospel is unlike moralism because the Gospel goes to the heart of the issue. The Gospel goes to our desires. And the Gospel sets our focus on Christ instead of on ourselves. You may have heard of a missionary pilot named Bernie May. I don't know if you know how good a missionary pilot has to be, but when they fly into territory that's pretty close to being unchartered, very, very, uh, you know, not advanced, underdeveloped, they face a lot of obstacles in landing their planes. And so Bernie May shared the success to landing successfully on missionary flights. He wrote this, he said, quote, One of the most difficult lessons to teach new pilots about landing on short, hazardous airstrips 
is to keep their eyes on the good part of the ship rather than on the hazard. The natural tendency is to concentrate on the obstacle, the danger, the thing he is trying to avoid. But experience teaches us that a pilot who keeps his eye on the hazard will sooner or later hit it dead center. End quote. And if you've played sports, you know that this is true. the, The wide receiver who's about to catch a ball, who knows that there's somebody coming to smash him. What does he have to do? Does he concentrate on on the person who's going to smash him or does he concentrate on the ball? He's got to concentrate on the ball because if if he's thinking about the guy who's going to smash him, he's going to fumble the ball. He's going to miss it. But do you see the principle here? Let's say that there's this enormous tree that makes landing a plane very dangerous in Haiti. Now, you want to be aware of that tree, right? But what happens if you just focus on the tree, but not on the runway? You're going to miss the runway. You're going to be bound to eventually hit that tree because that's where your eyes are. That's where your mind is. That's where your focus is. And in a similar way, Paul's telling us that instead of focusing on sins that we want to avoid, our focus needs to be on Christ. Because even if you're setting rules and boundaries that say don't do this, it's still putting the thought of that sin into your mind. And so chapter 3 begins by showing us a better way. By showing us a better way. Instead of focusing on the tree, focus on the runway with an awareness of the tree. Instead of following a bunch of man-made rules and boundaries that may indeed be designed to keep you from sin, focus your heart and your mind above, on things above, where Christ is. Because when our focus is on Christ, and when our desire is on Christ, the temptations of the flesh and and the lure, the, the appeal of those old sinful habits that we all have, that we all know about, they're moved to the, to the periphery of our, of our vision, of our attention, of our mind span. So we have a better chance at aiming to land squarely in the will of God. If you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on heavenly things, on things above. Set your mind not on worldly things, but on things above where Christ is seated. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about as we proceed, as we continue looking at the, the passage at hand. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Do you see the progression he's making? There's a progression of thought that he's making here. He's talking about past reality, future hope, and the present implications. They all come into play in, in two verses here. He says, you were raised with Christ, past tense. Your life is hidden in Christ, that's the present tense. And you will be revealed with Christ in glory, future tense. And that brings us to a very important principle. And that is that remembering that we were raised with Christ and that one day we'll be revealed with Him in glory gives us the right motivation to living godly lives in the present. Let me say it again. Remembering that we were raised with Christ 
and that one day we will be revealed with Him in glory gives us the right motivation to live godly lives in the present. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are united to Him by grace through faith, have the life of Christ. Christ isn't something that you have added to your life like you might add a tattoo or an earring or a necklace or any other thing. No, He is the source of our life. He's to be seen and glorified as the source of our very being. And in the same way that that Christ had a glory that was hidden until He stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, so too we have a glory that is hidden, but which will be revealed when Christ returns. So we have a future hope based on the historical fact of the resurrection and the present reality that we are in Christ. Not that we will be, but that we are. It's a present reality. At the heart of winning the battle against sin and having the right set of desires is understanding where the foundation of our very identity is. And it is entirely in Christ. That is entirely the foundation of my identity. It's entirely the foundation of your identity. Let me illustrate with myself. I'm an American citizen, right? But before I'm an American citizen, more foundational to my identity is the fact that I am in Christ. I'm a 45-year-old white male. But before I'm a 45-year-old white male, I am in Christ. I'm married But before I'm even married, I am in Christ. I'm a dad. But before I'm a dad, I am in Christ. Before I'm a pastor, I am in Christ. Our identity in Christ is foundational to our very being, our very existence, and it's greater than and foundational to every single aspect of our lives. Before you're an American, if you are in Christ... You're in Christ before you're an American. Regardless of of your ethnicity, regardless of your age, before anything else in your life, you are in Christ. And He redeemed every aspect of life for us. And thus it all belongs to Him. There's not one single aspect of our lives over which He is not Lord. He has redeemed it all. It all belongs to Him. He is Lord of the entirety of your person. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your body. And the way to live that out, the way to bear fruit, is to set your mind on things above in light of the fact that we were raised to life with Christ and one day we will be revealed with Him in glory. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5, he says, therefore, in other words, in in light of these truths that we've already looked at, there's a call to action. Belief in our being raised with Christ has practical implications that should play out in our lives. Let's look at verses 5 to 11. It says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So Paul gives us kind of a laundry list here of deeds of the flesh. Things to, to, to be freed from. Things to avoid. Sins that we don't want to be committing. They're all examples. All these deeds of the flesh, they're all examples of the result of not living in light of the reality of the fact that we were raised with Christ. If you set your mind on these things, on this laundry list that Paul's given us, it's A, because you desire them, and B, you will do them. You'll do those things. That's just... The way it works. It's human psychology. We, we act based on what's going on in our, in our mind and in our heart. In what we desire. What we dwell on. What we set our minds on has a major influence on what we will actually do. And so what does it mean to set your mind on things above, as he said earlier? I mean, if nothing else, consider everything that Paul's said here. Consider what he said about your spiritual resurrection with Christ. Christ died, He was buried, and He was wrapped in burial cloths. And us too. We lay in the grave. We were spiritually dead. And that much is indisputable. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3 to says this, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan by the way, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." Verse 1, you were, we were dead. We were dead, every, every one of us. That's the default human spiritual condition is being born into spiritual death. You were spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead. And we all understand that a person who is dead is unable to do anything to change their condition. As a spiritually dead man or, or, or woman, you were drawn to all the things of the world and you followed Satan and you obeyed all the lusts and the desires of the flesh and there was nothing that you could do about it because dead people can't change their condition we couldn't raise ourselves to life we couldn't impart lives life to ourselves we couldn't respond to somebody if they asked us if we wanted to have life on our own because we didn't have ears to hear we didn't have eyes with which we could see And our hearts were made of stone. Our withered hands couldn't move. And thus we couldn't even grasp for the edge of Christ's tunic. And yet it was in our 
spiritual death. That the Holy Spirit came to us and imparted life unto us. The Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin and and we trembled at the reality that we we were sinners. And being sinners meant that we were under the wrath of God. We were under God's judgment. Our our minds were able to consider the fact that the wage of sin is is death. And what a horrible reality we realized that to be because we realized we've all sinned. And for the first time, as the Holy Spirit allowed us and enabled us, for the first time we were given ears to hear that we would be able to truly hear the message of the Gospel. The Holy Spirit dusted off the cobwebs and the crust from our eyes, allowing us to see the glorious beauty of Christ who died in the place of all who would repent and place saving faith in Him. You were given life. You were given spiritual life by the same power of God which raised Christ from the dead. The old has gone. The new has come. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And the point that Paul's getting at here is that if you've been raised with Christ to newness of life, then live like it. Live like it. There was a time when you were spiritually dead and you were abiding in and content with death just like the rest of the world. But the resurrection of Christ, being raised with Him, changes everything. Just like a seed gets buried and and begins to to break through the soil first just with a a sprout, so it's no longer a seed. It's changed. It's a sprout. And and before long, it's not just a sprout. It's it's different. It it starts growing into a tree and, and vines and branches start springing forth and before too long, blooms. And before too long after that, good fruit. Good, ripe fruit. God is grooming us. That is, He's he's preparing us. He's causing us to grow in our likeness to Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And just as the things of this world used to give us contentment, they should now cause us grief. All those things that used to give you so much joy, which were an offense to God, now should be causing you intense grief. And now the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, are the things that give us contentment. We can't just settle for moralism. We can't just settle for some kind of superficial, man-made outward religion. We have to desire more. We have to want something more than just behavioral modification. If we have been raised with Christ, we should be experiencing transformation of our hearts and minds in our whole person. And Paul's reminding us that if we have been raised with Christ, it should change everything And that starts with our desires being changed. Think about it. The the dead man is is wrapped 
in burial cloths and covered by a shroud. He's surrounded by the cold ground as Christ was and as we were in Him. But God raised Him from the dead. And what did Christ do? He shed His burial garments, right? He, he leapt up from the coldness of the soil and He left the tomb. And in, in a spiritual sense, this is the same response that you and I should have when we realize that we've been raised with Christ. Sin becomes like the shroud or the coffin or the thing or the cold ground. Sin's like being wrapped in, in burial cloths, and the sin that once gave such comfort is now something to be shed. It's now something to be to, to be ripped off and cast aside. Let me ask you this: what if tomorrow you woke up wrapped in burial cloths in a coffin? And you wake up and you're aware of it. What do you expect to happen? You'd fight to break free, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you do everything you could to get out of there? Well, wouldn't you? Because a coffin or, or, or grave clothes, it's like a sinful habit. It's a place for dead people to abide. It's not a place for living people to abide. And when God's grace comes upon us and imparts life to us, we should have the same response against sin. Think about it. What do you assume about a body in a coffin wrapped in grave clothes that isn't moving and isn't fighting? What do you assume? You assume they're dead. But if an arm comes up... Everybody freaks out, right? What do you assume then? He, he's alive. Consider what Paul says in Romans 6.1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, what are you going to do? Keep laying in the coffin? Should, should you do that? In his answer, in verse 2, he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And consider what he says in verse 4. He says, We've been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so, so we too might walk in newness of life. Think about it. When Jesus rose from the dead, He immediately left the tomb. As fast as He could, He left the tomb. He did it early in the morning before anybody showed up. Before, it seems like, based on the testimony in, in the Gospels, it was before the sun even came up. He didn't wait until the afternoon so that when people came to, to pay their respects or to, to do whatever, they could witness it. Although I, I suppose He could have done that if He had chosen to. No, He left the tomb at the earliest possible moment. He folded the grave clothes and He left the tomb to wait in the garden where he would meet Mary Magdalene. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And friends, if you are raised with Christ, it should be making a difference in your lives. So don't wait to break free from the grave of sin and death. With Christ, if you are in Him, with Christ you died, with Christ you lay in the grave, and with Christ you have been raised to a newness of life. All who repent and will place saving faith in Christ, that is, every Christian has passed from judgment into forgiveness. 
from wrath into grace, from death into life, from having God as a judge to having God as a Father. And the fact that you would even begin to desire Christ. The fact that you would even start to believe in Him and to to, to try to break free from sin is evidence that God's grace is working within you. And that life, spiritual life, life everlasting has been imparted to you. And so in light of that truth, given that we are no longer dead in our sins, no longer slaves to the devil or to the desires of the flesh, we have to dare to live in a way that demonstrates that we've been set free from all that is selfish or sensual or satisfying to the flesh. We must fight to be free from sin. Not from the penalty of sin. That's been dealt with. That's, that's called justification. The, the penalty of sin has been paid. And now we're dealing with the power of sin in our lives. And there's a fight there. There's a fight. And it starts with setting our minds on and desiring Christ. Listen, if you have never repented and placed saving faith in Christ, I'm not here to ask you to say some kind of prayer. I'm not here to ask you to to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to fill out some kind of card because there's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. Instead, I'm just here to urge you to consider the goodness of God. If you have never believed the Gospel, to consider the goodness and the grace and the provision of God that you would be here in this building, right here, right now, to hear the Gospel to hear about your condition and to hear about the cure, the solution that God offers for your condition. Consider the fact that you find yourself at a crossroads right now. Either you'll turn from your sin and you'll believe in Christ and you'll find everlasting life or you'll remain spiritually dead under God's wrath. If today you've heard His voice calling to the depths of your heart, do not harden your heart by turning away. Instead, may this be the day of your salvation. So awake from your sin, cast it away, and believe in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and apart from whom there is no finding peace with God. There's hope for those who will believe. For those who will repent and believe, there is hope. A hope that's unperishing. For those who have been united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, may the people who are around you, day in and day out, see the difference that the resurrection makes in your life. The difference that Christ who is risen from the grave, makes in your life. As your lives and and your lips bear witness to the power of God to save us from the power of sin and from worldliness. Remember this, our, our actions follow after our thoughts. Our thoughts follow after our desires. Therefore, 
set your mind on the things which are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the way, do you think it's significant that He's seated? It's huge. It's huge because the fact that He's seated tells us that the work of redemption is done and the resurrection proves that His sacrifice on behalf of those who will repent and believe was both pleasing and acceptable to the Father. Remembering that we were raised with Christ and that one day we will be revealed with Him in glory gives us the right motivation for living godly lives right now. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You for Christ. We confess in the silence of our hearts, O Lord, that we have broken Your commandments. That we have not behaved the way we should. That we haven't thought the way that we should. That we haven't desired the way that we should. And we know what Your Word says. It says that the wage of sin is death. And so, Father... Nothing, nothing that we have to offer can change our situation. But we thank You that You offer Your Son in our place. The Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. Who upheld the demands of the law. And who was a substitute for all who would repent and believe in Him. Thank You that He took our sin upon Himself and that He took it away as far as east is from the west. We thank You, Lord, that because of Christ, because of His work, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank You for Your goodness, Lord. Oh, Father, we could never earn Your grace. And so we can only be grateful for the life that You've given us in Christ. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be changed because we were raised with Christ. And we desire Christ. We desire His glory. And so we pray, Lord, that by Him, through Him, and the working of Your Holy Spirit within us, we would bear fruit and bear much fruit for the glory of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. 
and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.